0: Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 13. We continue in our study of Genesis 13. We'll try to go through this first point fairly quickly. Abraham's material wealth, verses 1 and 2. Read with me there. Genesis 13, verses 1 and 2. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him. To the south, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold he was very rich and i remind you that genesis 12 and the covenant that the lord made with abraham he said in verse 2 i will bless you and we tend to think of the eternal blessing and rightly so but there also was a temporal blessing planned and brought about by the hand of god in abraham's life i will bless you and he did I'll remind you also that in Genesis 24, verses 34 through 35, Abraham's servant who went to find a wife for Isaac said this, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. The Lord has blessed my master. And I say that with emphasis because there are many commentators that say Poor Abraham became rich Abraham through sinful means, through covetous ways. They judge him wrongly against the clear revelation of Scripture. And so we need to guard ourselves from that spirit of judgment. It is easy to judge those who are wealthier than us as having attained their wealth unjustly, unrighteously, or now being covetous in their wealth or misspending their wealth when we ourselves are wealthy compared to someone else. And they too could look to us and judge us in the same way. We know not for the most part. Now, now and again, people make it quite evident. (laughs) Their sin is evident before all. But when, when I find good and godly commentators judging Abraham wrongly, contrary to what the scriptures say, I know that this spirit is prevalent in mankind. It is prevalent. And so let us not judge Abraham wrongly or our wealthier neighbors wrongly. And let us be rather humble in our own relative wealth and thankful for the wealth God has given them. Be thankful. Well, God bless you. I'm excited when businessmen prosper. I'm excited when men get promotions. I'm excited when people inherit, except that that means you lost a loved one. What a blessing. That's a blessing from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. The work ethic that helped you achieve that, the brains, the brawn, the back that helped you achieve that, or that helped your parents achieve that, or your great uncle achieve that, who left that inheritance to you, that's all a blessing of God. And the fact that a parent or a great uncle would leave something to you... That's a kind and loving gesture. It certainly reflects upon their love, but it's the love of God through them to you. And so we praise God for that, and we're thankful for the blessings on others. We guard ourselves from jealousy, green-eyed envy, and all the bitter things it sows in our hearts, and how we would judge someone for buying a boat, or a nice car, or two cars, or a bigger garage for their cars and their boat. Oh, my. And so Abraham's servant said, The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. The Lord blessed him. It's not sin. It's the blessing of God. It wasn't achieved through sin. It's the blessing of God. And how tragic it is that men would judge Abraham contrary to Scripture, and judge their fellow man even today. First Samuel 2.7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. I can't go through all of this point again, but it's a, an important point because we are prone to sin. We're prone to envy. We're prone to judgment. We're prone to look upon the wealthy and to think poorly of them. And so we praise God for his blessings and we recognize that wealth, yes, can be attained unrighteously, but wealth can be given by the hand of God graciously and can be the reward of hard work or just a special providence dropped out of heaven, as it were, through odd means at times. And we give God the praise for that. And so a few more words on wealth and relative wealth. We closed last time considering Ecclesiastes 5:18 regarding enjoying wealth. There are some that would grant you, okay, okay, okay. Perhaps you could be wealthy and not wicked. And let me warn you again, in a society that is growing more and more infatuated with communism, the very idea of attaining, maintaining Holding any wealth, any property is seen as evil. It's evil to the communist. Except the communist at the top, of course, who owns it all. And if you do any study or research into the history of communism, you'll find the men at the top were greedy. They were power hungry. They were greedy. They lived opulent lives as a rule. And so in this communistic society, and even in in a fallen world where fallen people even... Christian people at times suffer from envy and jealousy. Let us reflect on Ecclesiastes 5.18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. To receive it, to enjoy it, it's the gift of God. It's not unholy or sinful to be wealthy and even to enjoy the wealth. What is sinful is to enjoy the wealth to the detriment of others. What is sinful is to enjoy all the wealth and to hoard it up and not give unto the Lord for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and the souls of men for the advancement of the gospel, that sinners would be saved, that Christ would be magnified, to neglect the true needy, not those living a sinful lifestyle, drug and alcohol abuse, panhandling on the corners, but the true needy who do not have opportunity, who are starving because there are no opportunities for them, to open doors through ministries in third world nations, Doors of opportunity, doors to medicine, doors to education, doors to basic food necessities to sustain life. That's a wonderful use of wealth. And God gives us wealth for those very things. And what you'll find is as you give unto the Lord to advance the gospel, to rescue souls, as you give unto the Lord to bless the true suffering and needy in the world, uh, the Lord will give you more wealth that it might pass through your hands for his own glory, for the blessing of others. In 1 Timothy six seventeen, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Riches can make us very haughty and proud. Nor to trust in uncertain riches. Don't trust in them. They're not God. Remember, they can make themselves wings, Proverbs told us. <laughs> Don't trust in them. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Precious truth there. I I could preach that. Several sermons just out of that, that verse in 1 Timothy 6. But I'm not going to do it. But let me just say, I I know good, godly, wealthy Christians who do all sorts of good with the wealth God has given them. Others know them less well and don't know all the good they do and at times judge them harshly. And it is evil. Others know all the good they do, but still judge them harshly because they are profoundly evil. When I say others, I mean other professing Christians. It's terrible. Jealousy, envy is evil. Guard yourself from it. It makes you hate people because they have stuff that you don't. It makes you see things wrong because they have stuff that you don't. And so you're going to see their whole life. You're going to see even their acts of kindness wrongly. If they give... It wasn't enough. If they give here, they didn't give there. If they give now, they didn't give then. That is all born out of ugly envy, arrogance, and pride. May God guard us from that. After coming up on 50 years of life, I've seen this behavior in the body of Christ. And it's terrible. It's divisive. It's hurtful. May God guard us from it. Mark 4, verse 13, the Lord Jesus warns us of the deceitfulness of riches. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise the ones sown on stony ground. When they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. Hear this. They are the ones that hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness, deceitfulness, deceitfulness of riches. And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it. And bear fruit, some thirty, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Beware of the thorny ground, where the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And so while being wealthy is not innately sinful. Achieving wealth or attempting to achieve wealth to the detriment of loving the Lord and serving the Lord is always sinful. It's always sinful. Our first love must be the Lord. Our first love must be the Lord. And there's always a correlation between our wealth and our love. Where we spend our wealth shows our love. You spend your wealth on your wife and your kids. You're showing some love toward them. Now, you need to do more than that, men, right? A hug, actually verbalize, I love you, be there, right? (laughs) Um, That's all good too. Uh, But where you spend your wealth shows where your heart is. And where we don't spend our wealth shows where our heart is. And so we want to spend and be spent our energy, our time for the Lord. And we want to check our hearts by checking our checkbook. What are we doing with our wealth? Is it all for me? Again, it's not sinful to have a really nice car or five really nice cars. Not, not at all. Um, Unless that's where all your wealth is. And none of it's for the kingdom. None of it's for the honor of the king. None of it's for the souls of men. None of us to relieve the suffering of those suffering not due to their own sinful patterns of life. And so wealth sown for the glory of God, wealth used for the glory of God, wealth used for the love of God rather than wealth becoming an expression of our own intense self-love and choking out the Word. And choking out the Word, it's the revelation. The Word is the revelation of God. We don't want riches, we don't want self-love to come between us and God to the detriment of our eternal souls. In Mark 10, the Lord Jesus speaks of the danger of trusting in riches. Mark 10.23 Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. That's the difference. It's not sinful to be rich. It is sinful to trust in riches. To put your faith and trust in those riches. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter Began to say, we have left all things and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother, sisters or father or mother, wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so there are certain dangers in riches and we should be willing, should the Lord call us, to, to give up all the things of this world for the pursuit of the world to come, the kingdom to come. A few more words on material wealth. From Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, we are admonished to learn to be content with God's providential provision. Philippians 4, verse 11, I have learned... In whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Can anyone say amen to that? <laughs> amen. I think it's very healthy to have experienced poverty. It's good for you. So if you ever experience wealth, you're more likely to be humble in it. <laughs> And generous to others. It's very healthy to have faith and joy and peace in poverty. Not poverty because you refuse to work, but poverty just because you haven't had the opportunity to work enough. You're starting out in life or because there aren't opportunities, but to be at peace and to trust the Lord and have joy. And to learn to be at peace and to have joy. In wealth, not the joy in the wealth, but in a state of being wealthy. And should the Lord take you from poverty to wealth and that wealth begin to grab your heart, you won't have peace and joy. You know why? Because the things you've invested your wealth in are rusting. They're getting stolen. They're getting dented. They're getting scratched. They're burning down. Someone's stealing it. Or they might. And you're worried about it because your trust is in the wealth and the things the wealth has afforded you. So guard your hearts, saints, that they would have joy and peace and rest in faith in the Lord, whether you be in poverty or whether you be in a position of wealth. As the Apostle Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Content. The funny thing about people who gain great wealth sometimes, if they don't gain it in a godly manner, do they ever even realize they have great wealth? They don't seem to. They always just want more. It's not enough. And they're working so hard to get more, they're not even really able to enjoy what they have. And they have all this wealth and they could do all these wonderful things with their families, but they're still out there trying to get more wealth instead of doing things with their family and their friends and enjoying the wealth and blessing others. How sad, how tragic. And they die often before they ever reach retirement. Terrible. May God guard us from such. Two final words. On wealth. Second Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. If he won't work, he shall not eat. We're more and more enslaving ourselves to an ideology that is unworkable. It's untenable. It will not succeed. You cannot print money and give it away. Soon the dollar will be worth nothing. Like in some nations before us, you'll have a wheelbarrow full of them trying to buy a loaf of bread because they're worth nothing. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. What is the solution to the panhandling in all our corners now that we're plagued with? If a man will not work, he shall not eat. When they get hungry, they will go to work. That is the basic biblical rule. A lot of able-bodied people standing on those corners. Why? Because they don't want to be under anyone to obey anyone. They don't want to show up on time. They don't want to do a day's labor. They don't want to punch in and they don't want to punch out. And they don't want to pass a drug test. And they don't want to pass a sniff test. Alcohol in the breath in a shower this week. They choose complete autonomy. They are free spirits living on our corners. And people throw money at them all the time, which only perpetuates the problem and their destruction. It's not love. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. This is like in the scripture, it's it's like shocking we, we hear there's some not working at all. What is this? This isn't biblical. Second <laughs> Thessalonians 3.12. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. We command them. Get to work. Work in quietness. Eat your own bread. It's such basic biblical truth and our culture is dying without it. It's dying. These people in our corners, they're not prospering. You can see them age by the month. It's terrible. And when the big stimulus checks come, they all disappear. You know where they are? They're in the bars, the drug houses, and the hotels. And a week later, two weeks later, their stimulus checks run out, and you know where they are? Back on the corner. Still enslaved to their sinful lifestyle of autonomy and drug addiction and alcohol abuse. And hear me, our communist leaders love to have it so. They love it. They're not fighting it. They're for it. We'll speak on that more another day. Final word on material wealth, 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He. Men, you're breadwinners. It's on you. Not that there's no time that a woman can work in her life. Not saying that. But it's God's design that we are the breadwinners, that that we provide. Um, And so if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith. Again, in our society, our sinful society, where men think they're women and women think they're men, where women are shaving their heads and getting tattoos and Smoking cigars and riding Harleys. And men are putting on dresses and stockings and lipstick. That's the extreme. But we have Christians, Christian men, deciding that they're stay-at-home dads. And mom's going to get out there and win that bread. What is that? That's called rebellion. It's called gender rebellion. It's a role reversal. That's not an option. That's not an option. It is sin. It's in the same vein as the man putting on the dress. It's just not sexual. It's a role reversal. And so if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We need to feel that. Whatever we got to do, we provide. I worked with a Mormon years ago when I was going to Bible college. He was a 45, 50-year-old man and looked probably 60 because he worked. And as a good Mormon, he had lots of kids, right? But the man worked. He wasn't a brilliant man, didn't have a strong back, didn't have a strong head. But you know what? He was a worker. He had a strong work ethic. He had two or three jobs. He went from one job to the next, and he worked like 60 plus hours every week, and he provided well for his family. He worked. He used all that he had to provide for those whom he loved. And sadly, he it was faithful in the Mormon stake and temple baptisms and all that. Um, I shared the gospel with him prolifically. But he had a biblical work ethic that was commendable. And God blessed that, right? That, those principles, God blesses. He does. Now, outside of Christ, the blessings are going to come to an abrupt end at death. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is not consistent with Christianity, He's worse than an unbeliever, worse than a King James, infidel. And yet we have men being accepted in Christian circles as good Christian brothers in good standing with the Lord who have given up their manhood playing Mr. Mom while the wife goes off and provides. This cannot be saints. It cannot be. So that is Abraham's material wealth. God blessed him a word on wealth, important truth, vital truth. This is life-changing truth. This is world-changing truth. This is the biblical worldview on wealth in a nutshell. I could preach for weeks on it. That's a week and a half on it, give or take. Secondly, Abraham's spiritual wealth Abraham's spiritual wealth, verses 3 and 4. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So verses 1 and 2 speak of God's material blessings of wealth upon him. Verses 3 and 4, He went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to a place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there first. And there Abram called in the name of the Lord. He had gone down to Egypt, you'll recall, because of the famine in the land. Now he goes back to the promised land. He went to the place he started at, and there he sought the Lord. And again, I'm shocked at my commentating brother's who condemn him from going to Egypt is this, this vile act of faithlessness and sin. He went down to Egypt, and then he got wealthy down there, and then he came back, and now he repented. You don't see any of that in the text, but they read it in there. They find it between the lines somewhere. Many commentators say, now he's coming back repenting. Does it say that? No, it just says he went back to where he started, and guess what? His heart was still a heart of worship. Nowhere do you find anything to detract from that. He went on his journey from the south, As far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. The Lord who had blessed him. The Lord who had blessed him. Remember, the servant said, God has blessed my master. And Abram was up here experiencing this famine in Canaan, and he went down to Egypt, and God blessed him. And he came back, and he praised God for his blessings back at the place where he had started. One commentator wrote this brief description of the place of Abraham's altar between Bethel and Ai. Quote, A conspicuous hill, its topmost summit resting on the rocky slopes below and distinguished by its olive groves, offering a natural base for the altar and a fitting shade for the tent of the patriarch. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, in verse 8 through 16 speaks of uh, Abraham's eternal inheritance and a better country. He had a desire for an eternal inheritance and a better country. Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Remember, God in chapter 12, Genesis 12 Gave him a land and a seed and a blessing. You will own this land. You will inherit this land. And your seed, your descendants will reside in it. There's nothing to suggest that Abraham had stopped believing that when he went down to Egypt. Instead, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as were the stars, of the sky and multitude, innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. They hadn't received them, but they believed God. And therefore, they embraced them in faith and they confessed that there were strangers and pilgrims on the earth just passing through. And that's us, saints. We're just passing through. This is not our home. We're just passing through. We're trying to take as many with us as we can to glory, to a new heavens and new earth. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham, when the famine came, did not go back home. He did not go back home. He went to Egypt to survive, and he went back to Canaan as soon as the famine passed. He did not go back He did not lose faith. He did not lose heart. He followed the Lord, and he did what needed to be done practically to survive. Commendably, reasonably, all born out of faith. That is a testimony of Scripture. Hebrews 11 Verse 24 through 26 speaks of Moses in a similar way. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He looked to the reward. Abraham looked to that inheritance that God promised, even though he in his life never received it. But he looked to it, hoped in it, trusted the Lord, and he lived as a pilgrim passing through. Moses gave up the riches and pleasures of Egypt, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for the reward, the eternal reward. That's Christian living. That's living by faith, In the one true God. Action by action, day by day. That's how you can be content, as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. We should be the most content people on the planet, right? If we're in poverty, what do we know is coming? Glory. If we're in wealth, right? Which, again, as I warned you, once you get wealth, you tend to want to keep it, protect it, insure it. Rust only a bit, right? But you have that wealth, what do you know? It doesn't really matter ultimately. Go ahead and share it. Because you're going to a place where the streets are gold. You're going to receive the wealth of heaven. God himself is a child of God. God your father. And so you're content, you're at rest, you're at ease. Ephesians 1:15 speaks of Abraham's eternal inheritance being the same as ours. Ephesians 1.15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Ultimately, our coming inheritance in Christ is the same inheritance that Abraham was looking ahead to. Although he saw it veiled, and we see it clearly. We have far more reason to live by faith than Abraham had. We have this whole revelation. We have the end of the story. He couldn't couldn't say to Sarah, Sarah, the streets are going to be gold because that hadn't been revealed yet. He couldn't say to Sarah, Sarah, our father's going to wipe away every tear because that hadn't been written yet. He lived an amazing life of faith, an astounding life of faith with limited revelation. We have a wealth of revelation and faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. The revelation of truth. Oh, that we would hear it, and it will increase our faith, and thus our contentedness, thus our peace, thus our joy in whatever state we're in. Abraham's spiritual wealth is the same as yours and mine, ultimately. How is Abraham saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone who was to come, as we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone who has come. Abraham's Spiritual wealth. His spiritual riches are the same as ours. Ephesians 3.8 says this, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I was preaching at the Beaverton Saturday Market yesterday for about 30 seconds before this woman was on me like a pit bull. It's always a middle-aged woman or even an elderly woman. It's amazing so she's on me and one of the things i said to her and to the crowd watching her try to chew off my leg (laughs) was i'm here proclaiming the glorious name of jesus i'm here preaching the good news of salvation to sinners like you and i we can be saved heaven forever open hell forever shut through the name of jesus one name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved oh friends you came out for food. You came out for fun. You came out for family. That's all wonderful. But God has blessed you today to hear the good news, the best news, the greatest news that your sins can be forgiven, that hell can be shut and heaven open through the name, through the person, through the work of Jesus Christ. Oh, won't you come to him? This woman doesn't want you to hear about him, but you must hear. You must hear. Because you must be saved. You must be saved. Through this one name. The name of Jesus. Oh, we are rich in Christ. We're we're giving out the riches of heaven. You've got vendors out there selling this, selling that. You've got people playing instruments with the world's music, which I I enjoy the music out there. Most of it, some of them are... Ooh, come on, keep working on that. Then come public. Keep working. Yeah. Yeah. Don't torture us. (laughs) Praise God for the wealth of heaven come down. The wealth, the greatest treasure of heaven came down for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The treasure of heaven came down and we have that treasure. We have that treasure. Oh, that we would unleash that treasure. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ. They desperately need to hear that name. I was blessed to hear Steve steal my, my gospel tract presentation line, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's real simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel, they need to hear that, and Jesus Christ. You've offered them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's such a beautiful, simple thing to do. And they either accept it or reject it at the outset. And obviously just receiving the tract after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't save them, but it's the first step of humility and faith just just taking that. Or it's, the, it's a rejection. It's so tragic. It's so sad. Um, but I always hope even the rejection later on will lead to conviction. And maybe they'll, they'll be convicted and go home and open up their Bible. Probably on their smartphone or smart watch. <laughs> you have to have really good glasses to read something on your watch. By the way, that works. Use that. I've handed out probably tens of thousands of tracks saying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Not would you like... Um, Or here, take. Or can I give you the gospel of Jesus Christ? It works. Use it. And you've proclaimed the name of Jesus. It's great. I've lost my voice saying the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use it. Next time we go to the Saturday market, we're going to flood the market with tracts because they were taking them like candy. And they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That little tract, that's treasure from heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I so love, you've heard it before, let me tell you again. This dear brother down in Texas, when I was down there visiting Pastor Jeff, the 116 church there, he has a tract. We're leaving, we're done, and we're just talking, we're going back to the van. There's these gals there. He says, oh, here, take this. This is going to bless you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said it with such enthusiasm and sincerity that, oh, they grabbed onto that thing. As they should, because that's what it is. We don't want to mumble. (laughs) It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's treasure. The treasure of heaven. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, my 401k. Nothing compared to the unsearchable riches of Christ. All my stocks and bonds. Nothing compared to the unsearchable riches of Christ. My grand inheritance from all my ancestors. Nothing compared to the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we have it to give. And these riches, if they'll take them, they'll never lose them. They will possess them forever. They will be unspeakably wealthy forever in the truest sense of wealth. <laughs> Praise God. Abraham's spiritual wealth, same wealth as ours, same wealth as ours, saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ Christ. Alone. Abraham's peacemaking, verses five through nine. Abraham's peacemaking. We want to be peacemakers, saints. We want to model ourselves like this. And again, I I look to Abraham's life, and there are things that are questionable or terrible. <laughs> sure, but there are things that are commendable, things that we ought to emulate. And here's one of them. Verse 5. Lot also went with Abram. Had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Abraham's peacemaking. Who is Lot to Abraham? He's the tag along nephew, right? He's the run to the litter uh, who wasn't getting along at home, so he followed Abraham. <laughs> okay, that's not entirely fair. <laughs> but he's the nephew. He's the nephew. This is his elder uncle. So, who, naturally speaking, is in the lead? The uncle. Who did God call? To Canaan, his uncle. And Lot tagged along, which is fine and wonderful. It's great. And God blessed Lot for it. He did. Lot was wealthy also. As he tagged along with Abram, he received Abram's blessings. The same blessings Abram received from God, Lot received. In fact, so much so, they could no longer dwell too close together because there were too many blessings to be that close. Too many herds. We need some space. And probably we need, what do you need with herds? water, grass and water, grass and water, but water is king. So they have an issue. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. The land was not able to support them. They might dwell together. The possessions were so great. They could not dwell together. There was strife. Strife broke out. Unfortunately, sometimes wealth produces strife. You've got something, somebody wants it. You've got property, somebody wants to do something on it or just does something on it, and now you've got to deal with that. You've got to take care of it. They don't like how your property looks. So they've got property issues. There's strife. How do we solve this? What could Abram have done? He could have said, you're causing trouble. Beat it, kid. (laughs) Your herdsmen are causing trouble. Square them away or I'm going to send you packing. He didn't do that. There's a humility here. And there's what? There's evidence of contentedness here. There's evidence of peace here. There's evidence that Abram was a wealthy man, but not caught up in his wealth. You are infringing on my wealth, Lot. Hit the road. That's not his heart at all. Not at all. He sees, the handwriting on the wall, so to speak, that this situation cannot continue the way it is. Naturally speaking, there's going to be tension between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, there's only so much water. There's only so much grass. We need some separation or there's going to be issues. Notice it says at the end of verse 7, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And it would seem like you know, they're witnessing this strife and they don't want them to see this. Or There's only so much land available because the Canaanites and the Perizzites are still there. Not sure exactly what that comment means, but they're there. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. What a a great opening, right? Not, hey, your herdsmen, I've heard, (laughs) are causing trouble. Um, But he starts with, please let there be no strife between you and me. Listen, there will be issues you need to deal with in life. There will be tensions and contentions and real sins and things that need to be corrected. And this is a great opening line, please. Let there be no fallout. Please let there be no you know standing uh, feud. You know, please let there be no strife between you and me. But we got to deal with this situation. Here's what happened, or here's what's happening, or here's what needs to be done. But my heart is a heart of love. Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. We are brethren. This is such a great picture of how we should deal with issues as Christians. We are brethren. We're children of God. We're going to dwell in heaven forever as blood-bought saints. Surely we can work through these matters as brethren. As difficult as they might be. Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you please separate from me. If you take the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. It's all before you. And really, Abraham, remember, has been told by God, this is his land. Who's the actual owner of the land? Abram, because God has deeded it over to him. Now, these interlopers, right, these trespassers, the Canaanites and Perizzites, they're hanging out but when Israel gets a little stronger after a time in Egypt, 300 years, give or take, they'll deal with those pesky Canaanites in time to come. But God has given this land to Abram, and Abram is still humble, even in his rightful ownership. He's humble in it. And he says, Look, you go to the left, I'll go right, you go to the right, I'll go left, you choose. Again, it shows contentedness. It shows a peace in what God had given him. It shows a peace in the level of prosperity that God has lavished on him. He doesn't want to get a little more. I have chosen the very best parcel for myself. After all, I do own it. God gave it to me and you're going to need to move on. That kind of sandy spot, that's for you. No, there's is, is a beautiful, humble heart here that shows that Abram had set his eyes on the world to come that he truly believed he was a pilgrim passing through and that this promise would be realized not in his lifetime, not in a earthly, worldly way. And he had set his hope on the realization of that promise, that eternal inheritance. That just sets us free from all sorts of strife, all sorts of envy, all sorts of discontentedness, all sorts of worry. It just sets us free. It's such a wonderful disposition of faith looking to the kingdom to come and trusting the king. Matthew Henry wisely summarized the separation of Abraham and Lot. He said, quote, Poverty and travail, wants and wanderings could not separate between Abram and Lot, but riches did. Friends are soon lost, but God is a friend from whose love neither the height of prosperity nor the depth of adversity shall separate us. Isn't it interesting that their poverty, their travail, their wants, their wanderings did not separate them, but their wealth did. So be careful what you wish for. Oh, I wish I could somehow win the lottery and just fall out of the sky. I'm not going to buy one, you know, but if it just fell out of the sky, um, oh, that'd be amazing. It might be. It might be, or it might ruin your life. (laughs) It might wreck you, which is again why we, last time we talked about uh, that prayer, Lord, give me not more than I can handle lest I become proud and Lord give me not so little lest I become a thief. (laughs) You don't know what you'll become given the opportunity. Uh, But you don't know what your friends and neighbors and family will become either if you've been given the opportunity to enjoy wealth. So beware what you wish for. Uh, Matthew Henry Says elsewhere, the occasion of their quarrel was their riches. We read in verse 2 how rich Abram was. Now, here we are told that Lot, who went with Abram, was rich too, and therefore God blessed him with riches because he went with Abram. It's good being in good company and going with those whom God is blessing. Those that are partners with God's people in their obedience and suffering shall be sharers with them in their joys and comforts. And that, that's a basic truth. Uh, non-believers prosper. Our nation has prospered as a whole because of the Christian element, because of the Christian citizens. Our nation has prospered. There were many non-believers that came from Europe to America And they prospered because the believers built a Christian nation with a biblical worldview. Matthew Henry continues, Now they both being very rich, the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell comfortably and peaceably together, so that their riches may be considered as setting them at a distance one from the other, because the place was too straight for them, and they had no room for their stock. It was necessary that they should live asunder. Every comfort in this world as its cross, attending it. Business is a comfort, but it has this inconvenience in it that it allows us not the society of those that we love so often nor so long as we could wish. Riches are often an occasion of strife and contention among relations and neighbors. This is one of those foolish and hurtful lusts which those that will be rich fall into. Riches not only afford matter for contention, but are the things most commonly striven about. But they also stir up a spirit of contention by making people proud and covetous. Poverty and travail, wants and wanderings, could not separate between Abram and Lot, but riches did. Friends are soon lost, but God is a friend from whose love neither the height of prosperity nor the depth of adversity shall separate us. Praise God for his blessings. May he give us wisdom in Using them and humility. Proverbs fifteen one says, A soft answer turns away wrath. Abraham exemplifies this, saying, Please let there be no strife between you and me. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Lot! I need to talk to you. Great entrance. Now sometimes you come saying, Please let there be no strife between us, and it's as if you kicked the door down and said, Lot I've got a problem, because the heart is so wrong. There's no receptivity. There's no brotherly spirit ready to receive a kind, soft word saying, please, let there be no separation between us. But we've got an issue to deal with. Matthew 5.8, the Lord Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We endeavor to be peacemakers, some will not have peace they will not have it doesn't matter how peaceable you are they 'll not have it nevertheless, we endeavor to be peacemakers as sons of God first Corinthians three one says where there are envy and strife and divisions among you are you not carnal and behaving like mere men rather than Christian men and women born again and the answer is yes so when this strife began to break out naturally, right? There are circumstances in life that are strife producing circumstances, but then how you respond to that. Are you going to respond naturally in the flesh or supernaturally in the spirit as a brother or sister in Christ, as a peacemaker with a soft word, not a harsh word? Galatians 519 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Hear this, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not Inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, longsuffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Oh, that we would walk in the fruit of the Spirit. I try every time before we go out to minister the gospel to pray for the fruit of the Spirit to be abundant. That we would be in the Spirit and not the flesh. Because the devil is going to throw stuff at you. If you're in the flesh, you might throw stuff back. But we should live every day in light of the reality that if we're not in the Spirit, we might throw stuff back and pray to God that He would fill us with His Spirit, that we would be peacemakers, not stone throwers, or worse. And so Abraham's exemplary peacemaking is a beautiful pattern for us to embrace and Hebrews twelve fourteen says pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. So we want to pursue peace. You won't get it, right? It's like in our preamble to our founding nation's founding document, the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. It's not guaranteed you'll have happiness, but you're guaranteed the right to pursue it. The pursuit of peace its not guaranteed you're going to get it, but God commands you to pursue it. Pursue peace and guard your heart from bitterness, a root of bitterness. It destroys your soul, your heart, your joy. Pursue peace with all people. And again, Abraham exemplifies this for us quite evidently, as an act of faith in God. He's not covetous. He's full of faith. He's wealthy, but his faith is in God, not in his wealth. He's wealthy, and yet he's happy to be generous. Here, all the land is before you. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. Let's not have tension. Let's have peace, brother. What a beautiful example for us. Well, there's much more we're going to learn with Abraham and Lot. There is glory and there's tragedy, and I look forward to unfolding it with you in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into Abraham's life of faith, his adventures walking with you, our God, same God, and same gospel, ultimately, to him veiled looking ahead, to us clear looking back, but all of us looking ahead to a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness will dwell. Lord, we ask you to guard our hearts from covetous sin. Ask you to guard our hearts from envy. Guard our hearts from strife. That we would be peacemakers. That we would exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. May love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control by your grace through your power be the rule of our lives. We commit it all to you in Jesus' name, amen.